evening to you. Deuteronomy chapter 18 this evening, Sunday nights through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. We will get out of Moses' second sermon sometime, but to just kind of set the context a little bit, just in a sentence or so, Moses is in uh, his second of a series of five sermons, uh, all having to do with the same theme, the theme of obedience. Speaks it to the children of Israel on the east side of the Jordan River, immediately opposite Jericho. And much of this law, not all of it, there's a lot of it's new and, and a lot of uh, insights in the book of Deuteronomy to law that was previously given, but a lot of it was given to them on the, during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and uh, prior to all of that. And then God is now reminding this second generation, the first generation has died off, teaching them the law fresh and anew, and then with the added application of how it's going to um, affect them as they come into the promised land. They've been a wandering people in the wilderness, come out of Egypt. They're going to be a different kind of people. They're going to be landowners. They're going to be homeowners in the promised land. They've never known that before. So they don't know about moving boundary markers and all these other things he's talking about. It's all new. And uh, so uh, this is kind of what he's dealing with. Chapter 18, verse 1. The priests, the Levites, and all the tribe of Levi shall have no part nor inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire and his portion. And therefore they shall have no inheritance among their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance as he has said to them. And we remember that the tribe of Levi was one of the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, the, and they were not given a portion when they go into the promised land. They would not be given their own portion of the land. But their responsibility was to serve the Lord in the area of the tabernacle, to be a spiritual influence in the nation. That was what they were called to do. They weren't supposed to be farmers, and they weren't supposed to be ranchers, and they weren't supposed to be merchants. That's what they were to give their lives to. And instead, God gave them 48 cities that were spread out uh, in the promised land. That was their land. And uh, so here they are. They're serving the Lord. God has a very specific call upon uh, their lives. So they're serving the Lord at the tabernacle, ultimately at the temple. Well, they got families. I mean, they're having families, and that tribe needs to reproduce so that there's always going to be Levites and everything. So how are they going to eat if they, do, if they don't have, number one, the time, and they don't have the land to farm or to ranch, how are they going to be fed? And so God uh, chose to feed them from his portion of the sacrifices. So people would come and they would bring a sacrifice to the tabernacle or to the temple as unto the Lord, and they would offer that to the Lord, and then the Lord would say, okay, this portion of that sacrifice, I want to go to the Levites and the priests for supplying them in my call upon their life. So it was never a case where people would give their sacrifices and feel like, oh, we're giving it to the Levites. We're giving it to the priests. Now, it was always given to God, and then God said, I want to use this portion of it to supply these people that are, I've called in this way to do it. It's a, the parallels are a little bit like where you have a church that is large enough where it requires uh, full-time pastors and that kind of a thing, where 
they're not able to do what they're doing in a church and then go out and and uh, hold down another job in order to supply for their family. And so the Lord says, you bring it, he brings in the tithes and the offerings, and then he says, of that which is given to me, I then will give a portion of that uh, to these leaders. You should never go up to a pastor and say, listen, I pay your check, buckaroo. Uh, you don't. And uh, the best of pastors will never minister in that kind of environment. Because they are and we are not hirelings. We do what we do as unto the Lord. We would never do it for a dollar. We, would ne- we do things that you would never do for another person. But you'll do them for God. And you do the same thing. And God's calling on your life. And so it was a thing where they gave to God. And then God said, now it's mine. This is how I want to use it then to supply people in this unique calling. And this shall be the priest's due. From the people, uh, from those who offer a sacrifice, whether it is a bull or sheep, they shall give the priest the shoulder, the cheeks, and the stomach. Now, the, sh- the, the cheeks were the jowls, including the tongue. Uh, swap your jowl for a shoulder. <laughs> yeah, no. or, and then... Uh, anybody want the stomach? They, they have uh, in some of these animals, apparently, I don't know a lot about animals. We may have uh, some of you veterinary scientists and, and veterinary science and that kind of a thing, but apparently a cow has quite a number of stomachs, and this refers to its fourth stomach, which is kind of a delicacy. I know there's different kind of ethnic things where they eat different parts and different things like that. I'd rather be a vegetarian, candidly, than eat uh, some of the things that different people eat, you know. Uh, where's the uh, fresh vegetable and cheese platter, uh, please? So, but those, these were, in that day, and again in many cultures today, these were choice cuts uh, from the animals that the Lord gave to them. Again, so that the priests could be fed, their families could be fed, the first fruits of your grain and your new wine and your oil, and the first of the fleece of your sheep you shall give him. And so God then made sure they weren't just carnivores. They've got to have some grain and oil and new wine and also need some wool for clothing and that kind of thing. And so God would give to them of, of his portion. For the Lord your God, here's the reason, has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand to minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. So if a Levite comes from it, to, from any of your gates, any of the 48 Levite cities, Levitical cities throughout the land, from where he dwells among all Israel, and he comes with all the desire of his mind to the place which the Lord chooses. Again, to the tabernacle, ultimately the temple in Jerusalem when Solomon built that temple. Then he may serve in the name of the Lord his God uh, as all his brethren, the Levites, do, who stand before the Lord they shall have equal portions to eat beside what comes from the sale of his inheritance. So you had Levites that were spread out throughout all of the land. Many of them served, uh, let's just take Jerusalem as an example. They would serve in Jerusalem. But sometimes the priests were even broken down into a series. they break them into groups of 12. So you'd come in and you would serve one month at the, tavern, at the temple. And then the uh, other months you would go back to the Levitical cities where you had responsibilities there to be a spiritual influence within, uh, within the country itself. And so let's say a guy gets up and he just says, listen, I've got, I love God like all the priests, but I, 
but he has this extraordinary love for God. And he says, I don't want to be on any kind of a rotation. I don't want to be on swing shift. I, don't want, I want to be there all the time. And, and God said, you, if you've got people like that, you make room for them. And even if they've sold land or they've sold something of value that makes them uh, fairly well-to-do uh, uh, as a result of it, when they came to Jerusalem to serve the Lord there, they were to be given equal portions of food just like everyone else. In other words, God didn't even want the priests tinkering with this thing. Because pretty soon you get a, you set a whole system up and then pretty soon you got people at the top and they're deciding, well, they get this much because they've got this and, and then no, you can't come over here. This is our little kingdom and our little thing would be a mess. And God said, no, don't do it. You got people like that. They come in. No matter what their, uh, kind of financial condition, you let them come in, serve me as their heart desires to, and then you supply them equally just like everyone else. And when the Lord Uh, When you come into the land which the Lord uh, is giving you, you shall not learn to follow uh, the abominations of these nations. And so he begins to talk about these abominations, and all of them have to do with kind of occult practices and uh, spiritism and that kind of stuff. There shall not be found uh, among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. Uh, and so you had in those days uh, one of the Canaanite gods that was worshipped, Molech. They would take their firstborn child and they would offer their firstborn child to Molech. And Molech was just simply a heated up statue, whether metal or stone, heated up in the fire, and they would tumble their baby into the fire. And uh, the idea was that Molech's the god of fertility and all, so we're going to offer Molech our best our firstborn child, in order that he would then uh, bless us with fertility, more children, greater crops, this kind of thing. But that's the stuff that was going on in Canaan, and that's why God was booting them out. And, uh, and so he says, listen, don't be doing any of that stuff. And you look at that and you go, did God really, did God really need to tell his people not to sacrifice the children of Molech? Not to tumble them into the fire? Come on! No-brainer. They'll do it. The children of Israel later in their history under Jewish kings will offer their children to Molech. Amazing. What, God never ever says anything to us in His Word just to be talking. When He speaks about something, it's because He knows the capacity in the human heart for evil if we walk away from God. I never want to walk away from God. Not just because the damage it will do to me, I'm afraid of what I'm capable of doing to other people. And, And so when he talks, I mean, there's a reason for it. So he says, none of this. No making your son or daughter pass through the fire. Or one who practices... Uh, witchcraft. And so this is talking about one who practices magic by casting spells and, and binding people and putting hexes on them and that kind of stuff. So talking about witches, talking about uh, warlocks, talking about wizards, this kind of thing. It's not harmless stuff, by the way. They're, they really are, they really can tap into very real um, evil. And I, I, I personally, I don't like. I don't like being in a setting or being under somebody's teaching that 
makes too much of the devil. Where the devil is painted as being bigger than God, you know, and, uh, you know, I don't care what it costs, leave all the lights on at night. Me and my little God, I got right here in my arms, we're no match for the devil. So I don't really care for that. But I don't care either for people who just minimize spiritual warfare as just an almost nothing thing. It's real. It's a real realm. And, and it's scary stuff to tap into the demonic realm. And these folks are tapping in to that demonic realm. He forbid uh, them being uh, soothsayers there in verse 10. And that's someone who seeks to determine the will of the gods through things like they would throw arrows. They'd take a quiver of arrows, throw it on the ground. However the arrows fell, then they would uh, kind of discern that. Uh, uh, one of the ways that they had a common way was if they were going into battle or doing some kind of thing, they would bring a soothsayer forward and he would cut the liver out of an animal, cut the liver open, and then determine the will of God by virtue of of what he read uh, in, in the liver. And, and the problem with all this stuff is we look at it and say, how goofy is that? But demons don't mind goofiness. They'll, they'll, they'll jump in anywhere human beings are willing to just open themselves up to that kind of input. So no soothsayers, or one who interprets omens. And so this is, again, someone who uh, seeks to know the will of the gods through maybe observing the clouds or some kind of flight pattern of birds or some unusual event that would occur. He forbid also uh, a sorcerer, and that's one who attempts to control people or circumstances, again, through the casting of spells. And again, that's demonic uh, power and uh, the fact that it works and sometimes people say it works I mean this is this is uh, real and, uh, it, uh, and and they want to legitimize it by that fact that it works yes it works the demonic realm is a legitimate realm it has nothing to do with God sometimes I, I, you read about it every once in a while and I mean th there's some things that crack me up that probably shouldn't crack me up they crack me up in a sanctified way so what's he going to say next? <laughs> but you know, they got this whole push on to kind of legitimize witches today. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not a bad witch, they're a good witch. They're not a bad witch, they're a white witch. Listen, I'm not a bad witch, I'm a white witch. And what they don't understand is it doesn't matter bad or white to me. The problem I have is with witch. And God does too. They weren't to be any who conjured spells, verse 11. So we're talking about a wizard again. And some of these things overlap. And what they do is they're speaking about uh, different levels in the demonic realm that people would uh, kind of attain to and uh, power that they would, would have in that demonic realm. Also talks forbidding one being a medium. And that's one who connects with demons for the purpose of communicating with them, a spiritist there in verse 11, one who supposedly speaks with the dead, but they're really speaking with uh, a demon pretending to be uh, the dead person. This kind of stuff would include like seance leaders and, and that kind of stuff. One who calls up the dead is spoken of here, so this is someone who's inquiring of the dead again to, to get some information about the past or information about the future. And, and demons, again, they're very happy to play along with this game. 
if a person's willing to open up the door for them and let them come in and, and communicate and give that kind of input into their life, uh, they're very, very happy to do it. And God said, for all who do these things, verse 12, are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. In other words, he says, the, the demons, the, what these practices and the spirits that are behind these practices are the reason this land is in the crummy shape that it's in, the abominable shape that it's in. And so if you open yourself up to those same spirits, they're just going to produce the same quality of life in you as they did in these people. So, so don't do it, because then you'll force me to drive you out of the land, just like I drove them out of the land. And you shall be blameless before the Lord your God, for these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners, but as for you... Well, we're getting chipped. Where do we go to learn about, you know, the past, human history? Where do we go to learn about the future? Where do we go to learn about what we need, the wisdom we need in a given situation? God, as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. The Bible says that because of Jesus, we have access to the throne of grace to receive the grace and mercy that we have need of in our time of need. And so there's no need to go to any of these kind of things for the child of God. We have prayer. We have a God who loves us. We have a God who knows what we need to hear, a God who's able to give us wisdom and give us perspective. So when you know how good you have it as a child of God, these things represent no temptation at all. So nothing that the world, nothing that the demonic realm has uh, compares at all. All to what we have in, in, in the supernatural realm in our relationship with the Lord. This is why, again, I think it's so important. We've maybe talked about it during announcements or something a couple of weeks ago. I think it's so important not to jettison or begin to minimize over time in a local church the importance of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the supernatural of the Christian life. Because God knows we have a desire for the supernatural. We have, we have, that does something to our faith. It does something in our relationship with God. And if we shut people off and say all of that was gone in the first century, none of that exists for today, and all of this kind of stuff, and I don't have the time and I don't have the inclination tonight to prove that it, there's no way it could have all been gone in the first century, then what we do is we send people off into these other directions to get a real feel of something beyond just the natural. God's got... What God's got for us is superior to anything the devil could offer unless we rob God's people of that supernatural of the Spirit. And then God, Moses begins to speak about a prophet that is going to follow him. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb, and the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. Remember they said to Moses, Moses, we want to follow God. But, you know, God is this fire and smoke coming from the mount as he received the law. 
We want to follow Him, but would you be a mediator between us and Him? So whatever He says, don't have Him say it right to us. You bring it to us. So they wanted a mediator. And basically Moses is saying, another prophet is going to come on the scene like me who is going to perform the function of a mediator between you and God. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command. Now, the Jews all the way through from this time of Moses all the way to the time of Jesus recognized that the prophet that was being spoken of here was none other than the Messiah. That's why they came to John the Baptist and said, Are you the prophet? Or are we looking for somebody else? So, are you the prophet? They asked him. He said, no, I'm not the prophet. I'm just the the one coming and preparing the way of the Lord. He's coming after me. And and so they they asked whether he was the prophet. When Jesus fed uh, the multitude by taking in supernaturally, multiplying the food, the bread, and, and the fish and all. People at the end of the miracle, they said, is this not the prophet? And over and over again, you'll see in the Gospels as you read, where they say, is he not the prophet? Is he not the prophet? Is this not the prophet? They're talking about this passage. They're saying, is he not the Messiah and the prophet that Moses talked about? Now, the fact that this refers to Jesus is very simple for us to understand because uh, Peter, when he got up and he spoke on uh, the day of Pentecost and he preached to that great crowd there in Jerusalem, he spoke and he said uh, in chapter 3 of Acts, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall come to pass that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And then he goes on and says, To you first, concerning this prophet, he said, uh, and, it's, uh, and the fact that it pointed to Jesus, he said, To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, verse 37, he declared the same thing. This is that who said, uh, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. So it's a prophecy concerning Jesus. So the characteristics, notice once again of this prophet, number one, verse 15, he'll be Jewish. The Messiah is going to be Jewish when he comes, all right? The message of this great prophet, Moses said, when he comes, make sure you listen to him. Make sure you listen to him. Come on, Moses. You got a firm grasp of the obvious. What Jew in the world wouldn't listen to the Messiah when he comes? When God says something, there's a reason for it. So Moses said, when he comes, one of the problems is going to be, you're not going to listen to him. And I'm telling you, when he comes, you need to listen to him. He will, again in verses 16 through 18, he will come as a mediator, declare himself to be that as a mediator between uh, you and, and God. They wanted a mediator just like Moses, and so Jesus is. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, John 14. 
The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. These, these claims of Christ should have never surprised a single Jew. It's right in the scriptures. And, and then it was declared uh, that uh, the, the warning that the Father gave there in verse 19 against ignoring the words that were spoken through this prophet, through the Messiah. And tragically, that's what the Jewish religious leaders did when Jesus came as promised. He came to his own, but his own uh, did not receive him. And so when Jesus kept saying, we've even seen it on Sunday mornings, the last couple of weeks, we'll continue to see it, and he's saying, I am speaking for my Father. I am saying the things that my Father told me to say. I am. He just keeps saying it over and over again. But he's saying it from an Old Testament context that they should have recognized. This is the Messiah. This is the prophet sent, like Moses. And we better listen to what it is that he's saying. And then he, uh, in speaking about this great prophet that is going to come, in verse 20 he talks about how to uh, identify false prophets but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name and so a prophet is someone who stands up and and, uh, claims concerning themselves that they are speaking for God and when they speak for God they're a true prophet Uh, if they don't speak for God then they're a false prophet so the prophet who presumes or stands up and makes this declaration to speak a word in God's name, and if he does that which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. I think people be a little more careful to prophesy today on things. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord uh, has not spoken? How can we tell whether a prophet is is saying is a true prophecy or false prophecy? Well, we already know, number one, always has to match the word of God. Number two, it can never lead me into the worship of anything other than God himself. Anything that draws me into the worship of uh, Costco, Kmart, Molech, Balaam, anything like that, commercial Babylon, religious Babylon, then God is not speaking through that person. God speaks through people to draw us deeper into a relationship with him. And, and so those are the two things we already know. And then he gives us the third means of identifying a false prophet. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen uh, or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him or anything that he says. And you look at that and you say, well, now, why would God need to tell us that? Why would he need to tell us not to follow a prophet who makes prophecies and they don't come to pass? Wouldn't anybody know that? How many false prophecies have the leaders of the Jehovah Witness Church made through the years? And yet, Millions continue to follow Mormonism, even in professing Christianity. If they make prophecies and they don't come to pass, you've got to pull back real hard and look at their connection 
And don't bet your eternity on it. Chapter 19. He talks about the cities of refuge here. And this is something that we looked at back in uh, Numbers chapter 35 at some length. So we'll just kind of make our way through it quickly here this evening. And when the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, you and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, once you conquer the land of Canaan, you go in, you shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of of your land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now remember, before they had gone the, the, in conquering the promised land, they already had three cities of refuge on the east side of, of the Jordan River. And what a city of refuge was, was a city that if you accidentally killed somebody, as we'll see in a moment, it was a city that these cities were to be evenly spaced through the land so that no one was more than a one day's run from finding refuge in these cities. So we'll see in just a moment. There's so much we're going to see in just a moment. But let's say a guy's out and he's chopping wood out in the forest with his neighbor or whatever and the axe head flies off of the axe handle and it hits the guy in the head and he dies. What would happen in that culture is that his kinsman redeemer, his uh, near oldest blood relative, would now consider it his responsibility to avenge the blood of the relative that had been killed. But it's an accident. It would have been one thing if he came up behind him with an axe and killed him. That's, then the avenger of blood could go out and could kill him, and there would, be, it, it, there would execute him and it wouldn't be a problem with God because it's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But if the guy did it accidentally and the kinsman redeemer comes up and kills him, now you've got a, uh, a, an accidental death, a manslaughter, and now you've got a murder on your hands. And so what God did is knowing who, who died? Who, was, who had the axe? Well, I'm going to go and get him right now, and, and I'll tell you, if, I don't, if he's not dead by sundown, I haven't done my job. He, would, he set these cities up, just to, no more than a day's run, so you could run to the city of refuge, and once you were inside, you were safe. You present yourself to the priests, and say to the priests, listen, this is what happened, and then the priests... When the avenger of blood or the kinsman redeemer would come, the blood relative, he would come, they'd sort the whole thing out and then determine whether it was an accidental or deliberate death. If it was an accidental death, then the kinsman redeemer could not execute the other person. If it was murder, the murder was delivered to the kinsman redeemer for death. So what you kind of had in those days is they didn't have like court you know, courtrooms in every village in every city. And, uh, and so what it basically did was, when this kind of thing happened, it allowed people to run where justice could be meted out. And that was where the priests were. And so uh, now they had three on the east side of the Jordan River. Now they needed to put three more in the promised land that when they went in. And you notice in verse 3, God's so concerned about the, 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 the avoidance of, of the shedding of innocent blood. He said, even, you shall prepare roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, that any manslayer may flee there. So there were even supposed to be roads that a person could just make a beeline for these cities. And this is the case of the manslayer who flees there. 
that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, it can happen. Not having hated him in the past, no premeditation. As when a man goes to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber and his hand swings a stroke of the axe to cut down the tree and the head slips from the handle, it strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he shall flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood, when his anger is hot. I mean, if he caught the guy now, he wouldn't listen to the facts. No excuses. It, it, it would, uh, he, he's too, be potentially uh, too emotionally engaged to be concerned about justice. Lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and kill him, though he is, was not deserving of death since he had not hated the victim in time past. Therefore I command you, saying you shall separate three cities for yourself. Now if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your fathers and gives you the land which he promised to give your fathers, and if you keep all these commandments and do them, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and walk in, uh, to walk always in his ways, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and thus guilt of bloodshed be upon you. Now this is kind of interesting here because we didn't, none of this, this particular aspect of things wasn't in Exodus chapter 35. God promised Abraham that the Jews would inherit the, the boundaries of the land that God described to Abraham was much larger than Canaan. And much larger than the plot of land that Israel uh, possesses uh, today. And so uh, God said, now listen, if you guys obey me, you obey my commandments, then you're going to go out and you're going to possess even more than the land of Canaan. And when you do that, you're going to need even, because of the addition of land, you're going to need even three more cities of refuge. They never needed them because the children of Israel never possessed the fullness of what God uh, had for them. They came the closest during the reign of David, but we never see them adding these three cities of refuge because they, they never needed them, though God would have uh, enlarged their coasts and would have uh, wanted that to happen. If anyone hates his neighbor, so this is the, the innocent could go to the city of refuge, find refuge there. If he was innocent, we know from previously there in Exodus 35, he would have to live the rest of his life in the city of refuge or until the death of the high priest. Then he could leave again. So that even in a case of manslaughter, the family that had lost the loved one could look and say, well, the person didn't get off completely free. And so it's a way of trying to be fair all the way around. But in, in terms of cold-blooded murder, uh, there was not to be any refuge at all. Notice in verse 11, but if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, premeditated murder here, rises up against him and strikes him mortally so that he dies, then he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall bring and ascend and bring him from there and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. He is not to escape justice. And your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of the innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with you. And so the Lord said, I don't want 
Uh, he was very concerned about that, um, the seriousness of the crime of murder. He didn't want it protected anyway, but he didn't want innocent bloodshed because of kind of vigilante justice. And so that set everything up. All of this, the Bible says, the, the volume of the book testifies of Jesus. And so Jesus is, this whole Cities of Refuge is a beautiful picture of Jesus because he is a refuge for us, a refuge for sinners, Refuge open to Jews and Gentiles. Refuge open to anyone. He's is near to us, as you nearer than a city of refuge could be for us to run to. But even as Jesus is always greater than the pictures or the types in the Old Testament, He is greater than this picture of the cities of refuge, because in the cities of refuge only. The, those that were guilty of unintentional sin could find a refuge. In Jesus, there is a refuge for the person who has sinned unintentionally and for the person who has sinned intentionally. Now, is anybody else thankful for that in the room beside me? Yes, I needed a refuge for both types of sin, and Christ is that refuge. You shall not remove, verse 14, your neighbor's landmark which the men of old have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. So they never had land before. Now they're going to have land. They're going to have lots and they're going to have property lines and this kind of thing. And they would take a, a rock and they would put that rock, big old rock in place. And this is the property line. You farm that side. I farm this side. And uh, nobody was to take in the middle of the night, go out there, you know, and then move the rock 30 feet or something like that. I don't know anything about it. What do you mean? It just looks smaller today. What are you talking about? It's a... and, uh, and so he, he warned not to do that. And it's theft. And what it did was to do that, would, uh, that the people's land was their livelihood. That's how they put food on the table for themselves and their family, their children. That land would pass on generation to generation to generation. To mess with that land was to mess with the inheritance of the kids. So say, God said, don't do that. Uh, it's interesting that Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, he mentions it twice, not to do it. Apparently, uh, it was, continued to be a temptation for the children of Israel. To go out there and kind of move the thing a little bit in the middle of the night and, and steal from people or oppress people. And uh, uh, so he, he warns uh, against doing that. I love this where it talks about not removing the, the landmark which the men of old have set. And I, I love to think about the word of God in that context. The lines of right and wrong and good and bad that this book has set for civilization and for mankind. And it's not to be moved. It's not to be changed. And uh, so uh, a beautiful picture on, on a lot of levels. In terms of uh, their judicial system and protecting the integrity of it, verse 15, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or sin that he commits by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And so uh, God de determined in the you know, judicial system of the, the uh, nation of Israel that two witnesses were required in order to establish facts or a charge against another person in order to um, establish guilt. You couldn't have people being... Uh, 
of one witness coming against him, and it was he said, she said, or uh, it was hearsay, and, uh, you know, uh, uncle so-and-so said to aunt so-and-so, and this and all that kind of stuff. You had to have eyewitnesses, and you needed multiple eyewitnesses. Otherwise, you could have someone who has a, like a root of bitterness towards somebody, or they hate them or something, and they just go in and make a charge, and then somebody ends up in prison, or they end up executed as a result of it. And so God is, is very, very uh, protective on that and uh, made sure that there, there needed to be uh, multiple witnesses. If, though... Uh, concerning a false witness, if a false witness rises against any man to testify uh, against him of wrongdoing, gets up in court and says, this is what this man did, and then they find out later he's just lying through his uh, teeth, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord before the priests and the judges who serve in those days, and the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness, he's lying on the, on the, the witness stand, who has testified falsely against his brother, so this guy's committing perjury. Now notice the penalty for perjury in those days. Then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. So it was to be uh, whatever. I'm trying to get this guy cornered so he gets convicted of this. And if I'm found to be lying, then whatever that sentence is, I have to bear that sentence. There's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's absolutely fair. And uh, I think it uh, adds some teeth to, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I don't know how many of you have been involved in... uh, Everybody's doing their best. I know they're doing their best. But involved in, in some aspects of the American judicial system, it can be very disheartening. And one of the reasons it's disheartening is nobody thinks about lying in our culture anymore. Nobody thinks about lying in the culture. I mean, not nobody, but it's disappearing. It's a terrible thing. And so here's the kind of thing, if you wanted to kind of add some teeth to it, put the fear of God in people related to their testimony, is to put this uh, weight uh, on things and... Uh, take that poison of lying uh, out of the system. And so maybe this could make a comeback. I'll vote for that. Maybe somebody could run for office and uh, make that part of your platform and I'll think about voting for you. And those who remain, so they see this thing happen, they see this guy bear this consequence for his lying, and those who remain shall hear and fear and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. They'll look and say, don't lie on the witness stand. And it's a good thing. It's a really good thing. I don't know. You know, you take God away from from, uh, being something that people think about or fear in in our culture. And how are you going to get truth ultimately? If a person just says, I'm going to save my own skin and whatever. And what are they going to do to me if they catch me lying anyway? What's the big deal? can't be worse than what would happen if I told the truth. 
And, 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 and I think, you know, our, our judicial system is, can really be endangered in, in this way. And so this was something done to really protect it so that people would be afraid to lie on that witness stand. And I think one of the reasons that in, in our culture, too, that it is so hard to get people to consider the judgment of God and to possess a fear of God and the fear of future punishment and a fear of eternal punishment is they have virtually no fear today of judgment or severe punishment. And so it, it works hard all the way uh, around. But this kind of thing would put a needed fear in that legal system. Your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So if you went on the, 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 the witness stand and you testified in a case that would have sent a guy uh, to jail for five years and you were found out to be a liar. You did five years. If you attempted to um, get him convicted of a capital crime, then you died that sentence. I don't know, it just seems reasonable to me. In fact, it makes me happy. <laughs> I, think I just, you know, the lawlessness is so rampant all around us. I just think you know, some things you. We're just so unused to common sense anymore on anything that when I hit it, I, um, it's like Snoopy's feet. They start to tap, you know, and all excited about things. And so I'm not saying that it, it's, a, you know, in this fallen world, I don't want to see people be dying any more than they need to. But it's better than innocent people dying because liars or corruption or sin has completely infected the justice system of a nation. So we'll stop there um, and we'll pick it up in chapter 20 next week so that we can have time to enjoy communion. I'd like to uh, have you turn to uh, Romans chapter 8 as we introduce communion this evening. Romans.